Welcome back, uh, and a special welcome to our next guest, who is one of our regulars also on this program. Gives me great pleasure to say. His name is Charles Sam Fattis. He has served his country in a variety of capacities with great distinction, uh, notably in the uniform of the United States Army, as well as without a uniform as a clandestine services operative of the Central Intelligence Agency for some 20 years years. He has gone on to do a number of things, including running for Congress and writing a number of books, notably The Decline and Fall of the CIA. And he has been an unbelievably productive contributor to the public policy debate on this program, of course, uh, on Steve Bannon's War Room, and not least in his marvelous online resource and magazine.com. I commend all of these uh, platforms to you, and I'm so pleased he's part of our regular weekly fair. Sam, um, welcome back. And uh, I look forward to catching up with you on a couple of things that you've been covering handsomely at End Magazine. Great to be here. Thank you. Let's start with uh, the Manchurian president, which you subtitled in your piece, uh, The Dam is Breaking. Uh, I'm very keen to hear uh, about how so and whether you think it's likely to make a difference in policies of this administration. Well, of course, whether it's going to make a difference or not remains to be seen. But what I'm referring to when the dam is breaking is that I think we're all aware, if you've been following the debate, that when Hunter Biden's laptop surfaced, um, that essentially the you know the the propaganda machine, the, the the mass media sort of threw a blanket over this thing, put it in the Maxwell smart cone of silence, as I like to say, and just asked everyone to ignore it. So this mountain of evidence of unbelievable corruption was just uh, hidden away and is something that should have completely derailed Joe Biden's campaign. Largely, uh, probably huge numbers of Americans were completely unaware that that any of this actually existed. Now we have not just conservative media outlets, but liberal media outlets uh, beginning to actually talk about all this mountain of evidence of Hunter Biden taking huge, huge quantities of money from, you know, name a despot, name a thug on the face of the earth. Uh, he took it. So we're starting to talk about that. And of course, you know, people, a certain amount of interest in the more prurient aspects of this, his penchant for prostitutes and drugs and so forth. But what's missing, in my opinion, from this is is an examination of the real impact. Hunter was a bagman for a family enterprise. If Hunter picked up tens of millions, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars from people, he was picking it up for only one reason. I mean, there's only one thing that Hunter had to sell, and that was access to dad. Hunter has no skills. Hunter's uh, you know, thrown out of the Navy for coke use, etc. So the, the fundamental question is, what did all these people get from Joe Biden for that money? And in particular, what did the communist Chinese buy? Because they sent more money by far than anybody else. And we should add that a lot of the folks that are involved here on the Chinese side are either known intelligence officers, Chinese intelligence officers, or have connections to Chinese intelligence. So we really hone in on this. What you have is a communist totalitarian state, no friend of ours, via folks directly tied to its intelligence apparatus, funneling vast quantities of money to the guy that's now sitting in the Oval Office. What, what did they buy and what is Joe Biden doing even today at their behest in exchange for them? As I've addressed in a commentary today, Sam Fattis, the rest of the what I call constitutional food chain is almost as compromised, if not in some cases more so than Joe Biden. 
Um, Kamala Harris, uh, we don't know necessarily whether she's taken money from these guys, but she certainly has been ideologically aligned with the Marxists of communist China for most of her career. Nancy Pelosi, we're told, her husband's earned some $200 million, I think, um, in deals with the Chinese Communist Party. And then there's old, and I mean old, Pat Leahy, the number four in the line of succession. And uh, you might just share a little bit of insight on his checkered past as a uh, they used to call her uh, Leaky Leahy um, <laughs> for um, some of his uh, indiscretions, that's what they say. In Well, it, yeah. I mean, uh, you have Nancy Pelosi telling our, our Olympic athletes that they better keep their mouths shut in China because she fears for their physical safety. And you listen to that and you think, first of all, that's transparently obvious that you're speaking on, pack, on, on behalf of the Chinese Communist Party. But if we're supposed to take that as real, you're telling me that you sent our Olympic athletes to a nation where they could be physically harmed and disappeared if they dare speak their minds. Why in the name of God, did we send them there then, if that's really how you feel? I think the critical thing for me, Frank, is for people to understand that the fact that the Chinese have a worldwide effort to co-opt and buy the elites of foreign countries is not conjecture. It's not a theory. It is documented fact. All of our intelligence and counterintelligence services have recognized that, and we see it all over the world. All, all over the world, they are buying the leaders of, of countries that are critical to even countries much less significant on a strategic scale than the United States. They have the time and energy and effort to to do this. They are doing the same thing to us. They have been doing it for decades. And what we're looking at is the, the extent of the success they have had. They have penetrated and purchased, co-opted, recruited, whatever language you want to use, that, that yes, captured they Right. They refer to it specifically as elite capture, and that is the precise term. And that is exactly where we are as a nation. So when you look at the actions of these people and you think, you know, the average American thinks all they're looking at is incompetence, you are missing the critical aspect of this. We're not just, I mean, in Joe Biden's case, he may very well be at this point borderline senile, if not completely gone. But it's not just that. They bought this guy a long time ago. He is not working for the American people. And we could go on down the list, as you said. This is not just Joe, not that that's not bad enough. Pelosi, good Lord, we talk all the time about Swalwell. Well, how many congressmen are in that same category of having been captured by the Chinese Communist Party? That they, they have seized control of the government, really. Really. Our colleague uh, Trevor Loudon has, of course, done extensive research into this question. And I, I think his latest tally was something on the order of 125 members of the House and Senate have been captured in one form or another um, in, this, uh, in this concerted effort. Let me pivot, if I could, to China's increasingly important regional proxy and ally, uh, the nation of Islamic Iran. What is Biden doing with respect to Iran that is of a piece with the selling out of our country to China. Well, I mean, what Biden's doing to, to Iran is surrendering to Iran. I mean, this is <laughs> the Iran nuclear deal. That disaster was bad enough. I mean, it appears that he just wants to take this, pick up right where they left off and just take that few steps further. The Iranians are with some regularity, not only targeting our allies in the Middle East, they are launching drone and missile attacks on our own people. They launched a, a missile attack on our air base 
in UAE, uh, what, 10 days ago. Uh, we were responding, you know, not at all t- to uh, any of this. The Iranians released, what, back a number of weeks ago, a whole uh, series of threats against a grand total of 52 American officials, former officials, including the former president of the United States, Trump, complete with a video that they where they purported to show how they would kill Trump with a drone on the golf course in Florida. Uh, they're releasing videos showing them blowing up Israeli uh, nuclear facilities. They're and the response to this is not only not retaliation, uh, you know, we've continued to pull our Patriot missile batteries out of Saudi Arabia, and now we just lifted sanctions against them. So we, I think the number I saw the other day was we just released, what, $26 billion, somewhere in that range, to this regime that everybody agrees is weeks or months from having a nuclear weapon if they don't already have it, and is setting the, the Middle East on fire again and we're rolling over to these guys. That's that's what's happening. We're emboldening them, we're enriching them, and we're conveying both to them and the rest of the rogues gallery we're facing uh, that it's game on. And the, the one wild card in all of this, as you, you know very well, Sam Fattis, having spent a lot of time in some of these garden spots of the universe, in the Middle East, people do not respect weakness. They only respect power. The Israelis have considerable power. And the question, I guess, now is, uh, do they have a government that will enable them to use that power decisively, hopefully, against Iran in the absence of American support? In fact, quite possibly presence of American collusion to protect uh, the Biden team's friends in Tehran. I mean, th- this is so fraught, it's it's hard to overstate the dangers associated with all of this because it could very easily translate into not just a horrific regional war, but perhaps one that, uh, you know, winds up washing over much of the rest of the world as well, one way or another. Your thoughts? Without question, you're exactly right. Look, we, we, the Israelis, again, there's just the question about their government, but you're putting them in a position where really what you're saying is we're not going to do anything for you. The Iranians are on the brink of, of acquiring a nuclear weapon. Uh, the Israelis have said many times they're not going to let them ha- let that happen. Therefore, at some point, you're forcing the Israelis and potentially a number of Sunni Arab states to act to preempt this. All sorts of other ramifications in all directions. The Saudis are sitting there. They're arch enemies of the Iranians. They're right on the other side of the Gulf. They don't have a nuclear weapons program, but they have stacks of money. At some point when they regard it as inevitable that Tehran will have the bomb, in my opinion, they will fly to Islamabad with a stack of money and they will buy a turnkey nuclear program from the Pakistanis who will be happy to sell them X number of nuclear weapons and delivery systems and probably to send along the guys to operate it all. And now we, <laughs> and now we will have the real possibility of nuclear exchange and nuclear war, not just a regional war, all because we are in the process of just capitulating to these yeah. guys. Well, I, I think that's a, a knock-on effect for sure. The, I guess the question is, does that happen earlier on uh, as a result of Israel feeling that uh, it has no choice but to act? And uh, I think they would be wise to conclude that that's the case. But I do I do worry, um, and I'm sure you do too, Sam, that um, when you look at, at the kind of relationship that um, gave us a real shot at avoiding all of this uh, between President Trump and Bibi Netanyahu in 
the previous administration here, um, where we are today is you may well find, I think, this administration uh, having American forces in the region, if not actually interpose themselves to protect Iran from an Israeli strike, certainly giving Tehran a heads up that one's underway, which again could trigger uh, consequences that are hard to imagine, but uh, but very real, I fear. Sam, I want to turn lastly to one other topic uh, closer to home, um, specifically the state or Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, where you now reside, my uh, native state. I wonder if you can explain to us what is going on there at the moment with respect to uh, the long stymied effort to get to the bottom of uh, allegations of electoral fraud in the 2020 presidential race uh, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. So the most recent development, the most important development is a decision by the Commonwealth Court. The Commonwealth Court is an appellate court that uh, basically hears cases uh, concerning the state government and challenges to its functions. So a challenge was made to a bill known as Act 77. Act 77 is the law that the legislature passed in 2019 that moved the state to mail-in voting. So Act 77 created mail-in voting in Pennsylvania. It was challenged on constitutional grounds, put simply that the PA Constitution requires that voting must be in person. Commonwealth Court hold, held the case, uh, heard the case, and most and relatively recently issued its opinion. It agreed Act 77 is unconstitutional. Mail-in voting in Pennsylvania could only exist if the Constitution was amended. Act 77 is, was, always was unconstitutional. So now this will go to the PA Supreme Court and we will get a final ruling. I think honestly, the odds are good that the Supreme Court will agree with the Commonwealth Court that whether you, if you want mail-in voting, great, but you got to change the constitution. The legislature couldn't create it. What this does from a political standpoint is really energize the base that has never accepted the, the 2020 election, in my opinion, with very good reason, and sort of vindicate their gut feeling that this whole thing, there was something really wrong. And it also throws this back into the legislature. It's like, okay, what the court didn't take this opinion any further. They just said Act 77 is unconstitutional. You can't have mail-in voting without changing the Constitution. But obviously, the first question then is, if you conducted an election in the fall of 2020 and you counted mail-in votes, and the court says that you couldn't count them because they're not allowed in the state of Pennsylvania, don't you have to go back and revisit now the vote count? And particularly powerful because in Pennsylvania, first of all, outside of Philly and Pittsburgh, Trump took something like 80% of the vote in Pennsylvania. And if even counting Philly and, P and Pittsburgh, if you just take the mail-in vote out, he won going away. He crushed Biden in the state without these mail-in votes that many of them sort of mysteriously arrive. So this is really going to throw everything back into the legislature, which in my opinion has been trying to hide from this issue ever since. How can you tell us- Despite your best efforts, effect? let the record despite, show. <laughs> despite, despite the fact that I won't shut up. Yes, that's fine. despite that- Among uh, other things, your leadership they, has they, been really appreciated on this. They, they won't 
they you know they've tried to hide and now it's back to them the ball is in their court well wait a minute how can we accept the results of an election that was held in in a un, in an unconstitutional manner that that can't possibly stand can it uh, this is where it's going. It's going right back to the legislature. Okay, you guys have tried to hide. You can't hide now. What are you going to do about it? One thing, um, I guess, is that they could, uh, you know, try to make this all kosher by saying, well, uh, henceforth, uh, it is uh, constitutional. Well, we've changed the constitution to make mail-in ballots constitutional, but it does seem a stretch to think that they could do it retroactively as well Agreed. Um, but Agreed. uh but will they uh step up and uh act uh, i i assume that there are legal remedies if they do not are there not Sam? well there i assume there will be follow-on lawsuits and this is def i mean right now i think what the legislature is doing is holding its breath and on some level they're hoping the pa supreme court makes this go away and 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 they can escape when when that doesn't happen and i personally think the supreme court will agree with the commonwealth court then they're really going to have to answer and this brings into stark relief the dis, the distinction you have a base in the republican party that is fired up and has never accepted the november 2020 election and you have an establishment in harrisburg that has attempted to avoid has so far successfully avoided dealing with any of that and uh you're you know if they don't if this ruling stands and they don't act you're talking about 80 90 percent of this party probably that's really it's it's torches and pitchforks time in pennsylvania it's like wait a minute well we will be watching with bated breath on all of this um i i have to tell you my experience with the supreme court of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania has been that it has been partisan in the extreme and very supportive of this kind of uh, electoral fraud enabling. And uh, that, that certainly, it seemed, contributed to some of the problems in the last election cycle. So I pray you're right. We'll be uh, uh, not making book on it, but <laughs> watching, watching with keen interest and uh, look forward to your reporting on the subject. And I know in the meantime, you will be very much engaged in trying to make sure it does come out right there and in the state legislature as well. God bless you, my friend. It's great to have a chance to visit with you. We appreciate all that you do and look forward to our visit with you next week. We look forward to talking to the rest of you again tomorrow. Same time, same station. Until then, this is Frank Gaffney. Thanks for listening.